Hi there, and welcome to another one of my podcasts. I recently got a very interesting recording of a tenor. Now, you will know, if you've listened to my podcast for very long, that the great Caruso died in 1921. So when I tell you that this recording, at least half of the first recording, is of a gentleman called Enrico Caruso, a tenor, and that it was recorded around 1938, you may think that I've lost my marbles. But I haven't. You see, the person who made this recording in 1938 was indeed Enrico Caruso, but he was Enrico Caruso Jr., and he used to describe himself to a friend as the worst tenor in the world, which, on the evidence of this recording, is certainly not true. That doesn't mean to say that he was a clone of his father. But he was a good tenor, and he could have had a career. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you Enrico Caruso Jr. singing this aria in the late 30s, when he was in his 30s, and also by his father, the great Caruso himself, again when he was in his 30s. And so you can make a direct comparison. The aria is Recondita Armonia from Tosca. It's a short aria, so there's room for both of them in one file. I hope you'll enjoy it and enjoy making the comparison. Here the two Caruso's are.
Now, when one thinks of New Orleans jazz, the names that come to mind are Sidney Bechet, Jelly Roll Morton, King Oliver, and of course, Louis Armstrong. But there were other musicians that came from there, and there was a whole family of them with the surname of Brunies, originally B-R-U-N-I-E-S, although George, the most famous of them, decided he wanted to cut the E's out of his name and later became known as George Brunis. But there were other brothers. There was Merritt, Richard, and Albert, sometimes known as Abby. And Albert also ran bands. One of the bands he ran was called the Halfway House Orchestra. And they made some very nice records, and I'm about to play you one. This one, luckily, was made in 1928, so I had the benefit of an electric microphone. The singer is somebody called Johnny Saba, who's nothing great, but then again, most of the singers back then weren't that important. But the band really swings. It's a really proper jazz band. I'm not quite sure who was in it at that point, because looking in the books, it only lists people playing brass bass, and this is definitely a proper string bass. So I don't want to start giving you a lineup which may be wrong. Instead, I just want you to enjoy the music. This is a track which they made in 1928 called I'll Go Back to That Dear Old Pal of Mine. And it's a nice, proper New Orleans jazz track of that period, and I commend it to you. Here it is. Oh, no. I 
Now, you might call Long Beach a suburb of Los Angeles, although Los Angeles itself is really a collection of suburbs all joined together into some sort of city. I've been to Long Beach, so I know. Well, there in 1911 was born somebody called Lindley Armstrong Jones. It's not a name which people remember, and that's because when he was very young, probably because his father worked on the railways and he was very skinny, he got the nickname of Spike because he was supposed to be as skinny as a railway spike. Well, this gentleman decided he wanted to get into music at some point. But while he was working at the railway as a youngster, somebody, just for entertainment's purposes, showed him how he could use pots and pans in the kitchens there and play sort of tunes by banging the bottom of the various pots and pans. And this obviously appealed to him and it stayed with him. He gradually got into music and in the end worked as percussionist with no less a person than John Scott Trotter, who was the leader of the orchestra which quite often backed Bing Crosby. And apparently this gentleman, now known as Spike Jones, got to play on the original hit recording of Bing Crosby singing White Christmas. However, he got bored with being an orchestra that played the same thing every time, and he also had a sort of sense of humour. The result was that he started forming his own band of similar nutters, including people I've played you before, one of them being called Doodle Weaver. Look back at my previous podcast and you'll find a recording of him. And all of these people liked taking popular hits and messing them up in some way. Quite often there were all sorts of weird sound effects, honking horns and Spike bashing things out on the backs of pots and pans as he'd been taught. He got signed by Victor and much to everybody's surprise, probably him most of all, some of these became sort of hit records. And he then enjoyed a career for the next 15 years at least, making more of these daft records, which are still funny today. I gather, having read about him, that he wasn't a particularly nice person to work with, but of course I don't really know, I'm just repeating hearsay. Be that as it may, the recordings still stand up. The one I'm going to play you today probably wouldn't stand muster today because it would be accused of racial stereotyping. But it's funny, there was a hit record called Mule Train, which was based on, obviously, sort of cowboy-type things, and he thought it would be interesting if these cowboys were actually from China. So the name of this track is Chinese Mule Train. I think it must have been made around 1950, though I don't have a precise recording date. It's typical Spike Jones and his band, which was known as the City Slickers. The quality of his musicians was very high. Listen to what they're doing. It's not easy. Sometimes to be musical and funny takes a lot of talent, and I think this is a good example. Spike Jones and his City Slickers play Chinese Mule Train. Lo 
There's a plug of short tobacco for a miner in Kelowna. A guitar for a cowboy where out in Arizona. A glass of calico for a flint in Navajo. Get a loho, yo! Get a loho, luche! Now, there was a soprano called Lina Cavalieri. I think she was born in 1874 and died in 1944. She began her career in the Folie Berger in Paris and performed at various reviews and shows of that nature and then decided she wanted to be an opera singer. And indeed, she became one and had quite a sizable career. What helped her, of course, was her looks. She was known during her best years as the most beautiful woman in the world. That can't do you any harm and it naturally got her bookings. She was even in silent films and later on after she died a film was made about her starring Gina Lollobrigida which tells you quite a lot. That's Lina Cavalieri. There's another Cavalieri, another soprano and I don't think that they were related. On the other hand she was a better singer but we don't know when she was born or died because she had a fairly minor career and it's only an accident that we know about her at all. She tended to play the minor opera houses of Italy and only occasionally got the chance of playing abroad, particularly South America. Somewhere along the line, however, somebody must have heard her 
when she was in the USA. Why she was there, I don't know, because I don't think she ever performed in the USA on stage. But somebody liked her and decided that she needed to be recorded for Victor, which was, of course, one of the top companies. However, because she wasn't a big name, she was never put on their prestigious red label, but her records came out on the cheaper blue label. Her name was Elda Cavalieri, and I think that were she around now, she'd be a major name. But such was the standard that you expected of singers back then, unless you happened to be the most beautiful woman in the world. She never really made it to the big time. She herself, certainly not ugly, but she wasn't a spectacular beauty such as Lina Cavalieri was. Well, this is a recording she made, as she made all her recordings, in 1906. That was the only time she ever recorded, and she had two or three sessions in New England and New York City. As I say, these are the only recordings there are of her. Almost 30 tracks, however, and almost all of them are with a piano accompaniment. So they obviously weren't going to spend too much money on her. Here she is in one of her first recordings singing from Il Travatore, the aria Takea la Notte, in the spring of 1906. Elda Cavalieri.
Well, now we're going to leap backwards in time to the beginning of recording. What I'm about to play you was recorded somewhere around 1900, which means we're dealing with pre-78 disc recordings and we're in the era of cylinders. One of the companies involved in making cylinders was called Lambert. These are very rare cylinders, but they still exist. Now, one of the American traditions of music in addition to jazz and country music is a form of you might call mini choral music known as barbershop quartets all you needed to achieve this was four people with reasonable voices who could sing in harmony and that's it the early recording horn was suitable particularly to instruments like the cornet and brass instruments in general but also of course to the human voice so one of the things they were able to do back in the day was record barbershop quartet singing. I don't know much about the group that's singing here, but they were called, or they called themselves, the American Quartet. And this is a typical example of really good barbershop quartet singing of the period. They're singing a little ditty called Little Cotton Dolly, about which I know nothing. But I thought you'd find it very interesting, and the recording quality is remarkably good for its time. So let's listen to Little Cotton Dolly, sung by the American Quartet on a Lambert cylinder somewhere around 1900, I think. Here goes. Little Cotton Dolly by the American Quartet, Lambert Records. Once there was a baby coon way down in South Carolina. Daddy's name was Rested, and his mammy's name was Dinah. Born down in the cotton field, but she was not to blame. Call her little cotton dolly, such a funny name. Mammy rocked her babe to sleep each night when twilight came. Coming after you, the coming, coming after you. 
and from 1900 we leap forwards all the way to 1953. Now, although we're supposed to share a language, the culture of the USA and Great Britain are really very different. And I'm sure that were you to have a show or a film involving George Formby, and I mean George Formby Jr., the one that was the cheeky chappy with the banjolele, most people in America wouldn't be able to make head or tail of it. Part of his charm, of course, was that he was a daft lad from the north of England. The accent was part of his charm. Well, there's an American equivalent, but it's the other way around. It's people from the south, and there was a type of humour which featured a sort of folksy, I come from the backwoods in the back of beyond somewhere in the southern states that appeals to Americans, which doesn't really work with British audiences. One of the people who made his name with this was a gentleman called Andy Griffith. He really was born in the South, in Carolina, in 1926. Actually, that's the same year the Queen was born, and Marilyn Monroe, for that matter. Anyway, he was born in the rural South, and he really did come from a background of poverty. His parents literally had nowhere to live when he was a baby and left him with some relatives. But they weren't too well off either, and his cot was basically a drawer in a dresser rather than a proper cot. Nevertheless, he grew up and became healthy and got very interested in swing music, which most people of his generation did. At school, he was able to make his fellow pupils laugh, and like most Southern people, he was sort of indoctrinated with religion and was very fond of his minister, who also ran the brass band and got him to learn trombone, which was great for him because, as I say, he liked this modern swing music of his day. Well, I'm not going to go through his whole career, but he gradually managed to get into musical comedy, sang, acted, and then was in a couple of films and began to be a bit of a name. By the 50s and 60s, he was in his own TV series. One was called The Andy Griffith Show, and there was a later sort of legal series called Matlock. And he became a TV producer as well, and Altogether, he spent almost seven decades in show business, so quite a long, successful career. However, he had a hit record in 1953, and it was a sort of monologue of somebody from the South, one of those folksy comedy-type talks that would have gone down well in America. It seems to be a live recording. Basically, he is supposed to be a Southern minister, of some sort, Baptist minister probably because that's what he was indoctrinated with as a kid, and he's trying to describe his experience of football. When I say football, I don't mean proper football, association football or rugby football, but American football, which is, for those people who've never seen it, a sort of version of rugby, but you wear armour plating. Anyhow, this is his version of it, and you hear the reaction of his audience. And this sold a lot of records. So this is Andy Griffiths in 1953. Maybe not a big name in Great Britain, but a huge star in the USA. He died in 2012. It was back last October, I believe it was. We are going to hold a tent service off at this college town. And we got there about dinner time on Saturday. And uh, different ones of us thought that we ought to get us a mouthful to eat before that we set up the tent. And so we got off of the truck and followed this little bunch of people through this 
small little bitty patch of woods there. And we come up on a big sign. It says, get something to eat here. And uh, I went up and got me two hot dogs and a big orange drink. And before that I could take every mouthful of that food, this whole raft of people come up around me and got me to where I couldn't eat nothing, up like, and I dropped my big orange drink. I did. Well, friends, they come in to move, and they want so much that I could do but move with them. Well, we come in to go through all kinds of doors and gates, and I don't know what all, and I looked up over one of them, and it says North Gate. And we kept on going through there, and pretty soon we come up on a young boy. And he says, ticket, please. And I says, friend, I don't have a ticket. I don't even know where it is that I'm going. I did. Well, he says, come out as quick as you can. And I says, I'll do her. I'll turn right around the first chance I get. Well, we kept on moving through there. And pretty soon, everybody got where it was that they was a-going, because they parted, and I could see pretty good. I, I, I could. And what I seen was this whole raft of people a-setting on these two banks and a-looking at one another across this pretty little green cow pasture. <laughs> well, they was. And somebody had took and drove white lines all over it and drove posties in it, and I don't know what all... And I looked down there, and I seen five or six convicts a-running up and down and a-blowing whistle. They was. And then I looked down there, and I seen these pretty girls a-wearing these little bitty short dresses and a-dancing around. And so I sat down and thought I'd see what it was that was going to happen. I did. And about the time I got set down good... I looked down there, and I seen 30 or 40 men come running out of one end of a great big outhouse down there. <laughs> they did. And everybody where I was a-setting got up and hollered. And about that time, 30 or 40 come running out of the other end of that outhouse, and the other bank full, they got up and hollered. And I asked this fellow that was besetting beside of me, I says, friend, what is it that they're hollering for? Well, he whopped me on the back and he says, buddy, have a drink. Well, I says, I believe I will have another big orange. <laughs> and I got it and sat back down. And when I got down there again, I seen that them men had got in two little bitty bunches down there. They had rail close together. And they voted. They did. They voted and elected one man apiece. And them two men come out in the middle of that cow pasture and shook hands like they hadn't seen one another in a long time. And then a convict come over to where they was a standing, and he took out a quarter, and they come in to odd man right there. <laughs> they did. Well, after a while, I seen what it was that there's odd man in fault. It was that both bunches full of them men wanted this funny-looking little pumpkin to play with. <laughs> they did, and I know, friends, that they couldn't eat it because they kicked it the whole evening and it never busted. <laughs> but uh, anyhow, what I was telling was that both bunches full wanted that thing, 
And one bunch got it, and it made the other bunch just as mad as they could be. And friends, I seen that evening the awfulest fight that I have ever seen in my life. I did. They would run at one another and kick one another and throw one another down and stomp on one another and grind their feet in one another and I don't know what all. And just as fast as one of them would get hurt, they'd tote him off and run another one. <laughs> well, they'd done that as long as I sat there. But pretty soon, this boy that had said, Ticket, please, he come up to me and he says, Friends, you're going to have to leave because it is that you don't have a ticket. And I says, Well, all right. And I got up and left. And I don't know, friends, to this day what it was that there's a doing down there, but I have studied about it. And I think that it's some kindly of a contest where they see which bunch full of them men can take that pumpkin and run from one end of that cow pasture to the other without either getting knocked down or stepping in something. And now, as always, we come to my track, my personal track. Before I do so, as always, I'm going to remind you that I've got a lot of 78 RPM doubles which need a good home, so if you're hearing this for the first time, do get in touch. The easiest way is to send me an email, spats47 at ntlworld.com. You can also find on the right-hand side of the top of the website a place to contact me via my own website which is simply earloken one word dot net that's e-a-r-l-o-k-i-n dot net you can contact me that way secondly it really would help if you could email a link to all your friends either by email or on facebook or whatever please let them know about this podcast if you're enjoying it because there's so much on record before 1960 that nobody seems to know about anymore. And it's good stuff. Not all of it, but a lot of it is wonderful and some of it is interesting at the very least. So please let them know that. And finally, and I haven't said this for some time, if you want to contact me in the ways I've already just specified, you can also request something that you think I might have some 78 that might be in my collection and you want to hear. So please don't hesitate, don't be shy, just ask me. Well, I mentioned before that it's difficult trying to be musical and funny at the same time. There are various ways of doing this. One of the ways in which I've tried to do it is to sing songs in the wrong genre. For instance, in the 1990s, there were a series of pop groups now known as Britpop. One of them it's called Blur, and they had a hit record with something called Song 2. Now, it obviously was not designed to be sung by lounge jazz singers of the 1940s, so it just sounds wrong when you try and do it that way and you get some laughs. So this is my version, live, with an audience, just as Andy Griffiths did with his and no doubt my stuff would not work in America because they wouldn't know what I was even making fun of. But this is my version of Song 2, written by Blur, and recorded some time ago, actually. I haven't done this song for ages. So, until next time, I say to you, 
Au revoir. By a jumbo jet It wasn't easy It never is, no Wahoo When I hear heavy metal Wahoo And I'm pins and I'm needles Wahoo And I lie and I'm easy All of the time But I never know when I need you Hey Pleased to meet you, yeah. Mm, yeah, yeah. I get my head done when I was young. It's not my problem. Yeah, it's not my problem. <laughs> Wahoo! When I hear heavy metal, Wahoo! When I'm pins and I'm needles, Wahoo! And I lie and I'm easy all of the time, but I never know how I need you. Hey, pleased to meet you, Thank you.